0: Has it already been 10 years? Wow. I, looked, I was like, that, when I was pointing that that was our Articles of Incorporation, we signed it at uh, the Coffee Bean, and then we didn't have enough paper, so I used my son's homework to print it. So, uh, yeah, the uh, state has all of my son's homework on the other side of that paper. But we did it. We're good. Um, I want to welcome you today. Uh, thank you for being here today. Uh, this message that we're going to talk about today is James's final push. So if you felt like as we're going along in the journey a little bit and you felt like, wow, this is some pretty heavy stuff. He's, he, I feel conviction. I feel like God, God is speaking to me. Some of these are hard words to hear. This is probably the most difficult of all to hear. And then next week is very, very encouraging. So I want to let you know, come next week too, because you're going to hear James kind of conclude and call people to something great. But this week, ultimately, James has been driving home every single chapter, one main question we have to ask. And you want to know what that question is? Are you faithful or are you a phony? This is a tough question, and he's pushing it hard. And he's making sure that his church people are not a church full of phonies. This week, we're going to see one other thing James is asking some questions of us. Can you or will you see your life differently Your life purpose, why you're here, how you conduct your life, what matters to you in life. Can you start to see yourself as an active agent of what God is doing in the world? We're going to look at uh, James 4, 13 through chapter 5, verse 6. And ultimately, we're going to see this battle. James uses uh, the two ideas kind of concept. And what he's saying is there is, in this section, two wills there is your will, and then there is God's will. Which will will you choose? And he is asking them to really decipher this in their own life. Um, Have you ever noticed maybe before when you've prayed God's will to do something and you felt like, man, man, I got to seek God's will to do it. Have you ever noticed a lot of times people will be like, I'm going to pray God's will, but it usually ends up being their will. And it's like, that's a really good track record that God's will and your will seem to align up almost every time. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like, well, it must be God's will. I didn't hear from him. So there we go. It's me. And it's like, no, 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 no. But James is going to press some buttons And James is going to actually show us something really important that you might not have seen in the section of James on how to actually know God's will for your life. And so it's a great time to just be very open and and try to very much humble your heart to hear what James is trying to say. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to share this message. God, I ask that as these words are shared, your eternal truth. Your word that divides uh, just body and soul, God. Your word that divides truth and lie, God. I, I just pray that the word today from James actually brings anything that is in the darkness out into the light in our life so it can actually begin to heal and transform. We love you, God. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, I, I always say this, listen. I love youth ministry. I love anything with the next generation. Uh, My story was always that I, I, in my mind, how I pictured how I wanted to be in youth ministry was the person that I never had when I was growing up. I I, I so desperately would have loved somebody who was a normal Christian, (laughs) a normal Christian, you need to be normal when you're talking to teenagers because they're going to be like, you're weird, I'm not talking to you. They don't give you a time of day. And so just a normal person in my life that wouldn't tell me I was a horrible person and needed to change and I should be better. I just needed someone who could connect with me. And I just was like, God, help me be this person for kids. That's all I saw was what I didn't have when I was growing up. So I had a deep conviction to convict anyone to help them come to realize that the best thing they could do with their life is volunteer for the next generation. And I would always say, hey, listen, I think you would be great in youth ministry. I think you'd be incredible. No, 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 They'd always say, no, 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 I'm not. No, you don't understand. And I'd be like, no, I know. I know you'd be good. And so and I'd stop them from giving me an excuse, and I'd take it right out of their mouth, and I'd turn it right back on them. This is not manipulation. God wanted me to do it, okay? So like, I would just be like, no, you don't understand, I always saw them, people, when they would come with me with like that, of like, you don't know, like, I remember Gideon when he was like, no, God, I can't do this for you. And God's like, I love that energy. Get going. Like, so I had that in my mind. And they would always say this to me. And in the beginning, they got me. Christians can be so tricky, you know what I mean, with their Christian words. And they got me in the beginning. They're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just pray what God's will is. And I'd never hear from him again. Never. think God's will was: don't ever talk to Ryan if you see him at church. Avoid him. Like it was like, oh, that's God's will. And I learned. I learned real quick. I was like, you're going to tell me God's will? Oh, you're going to seek God's will? And I got ready, and I got a passage ready for him. They said, oh, I would say, they would say, let me seek God's will. I'd say, oh, you don't need to seek God's will. I'm going to tell you what His will is right now. And they're like, oh. And I'd read First Peter four ten through eleven. Each of you should use whatever gift you have. To, re, to, to have received to serve others, the gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, that's God's will. So I know His will for you. You don't have to pray. <laughs> now come in here and play video games with kids. Like it was like a. <laughs> and my, my, my rate was very high. Like people were like, I hate teenagers. And then they love teenagers six months later because, listen. A lot of times we're saying, I'm going to seek God's will, and then we're tending to lean more towards what's comfortable for us. And James is saying, listen, if you want to know God's will, I'm going to tell you how to find it. One of the things that James is going to start to kind of ask a question through some of these very hard statements he's making, it's going to provoke a question inside of us. And the question is this, is your life for God? My title of my message is whose will, yours or God's? And James is going to ask this question, is your, lo- is your life for God? I love James because he ain't playing around, you know what I mean? He's not letting people play nice Christian. Uh, I've seen a lot of that, and over the years, sometimes I've participated in it myself, and it's a gross feeling when you're pretending to be something that you're really not because everybody accepts the, your fake you. James comes right out and he says it verse four uh, chapter four thirteen Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and we will spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. what is your life you're so Fixed on what you know, what your plans are and what they shall be. You are so fixed that in some ways we can get so on our will that we don't hold God's will open-handed. And so when God is calling us to something, we're like, no, 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 God, that's not you. You wouldn't make me go through that. That's the devil. And I know the devil when I hear it. Right? We we can get really fixed in our own ways. But James is saying you gotta have an honest look inside. Is it really God's will? Do you really put your trust in God? Is your life for God? Jesus tells this parable in uh, Luke chapter 12, and you probably know it. He's talking about this guy who has a very good crop, and it actually is so good. He's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this time, and I'm going to relax, Drink and be merry actually let me quote what he says I will say to my soul soul you have ample goods laid up for many years relax eat and be merry and I would say that's probably what we'd say is the dream I just want to be able to kick my feet up I want to be able to relax I just want to just have no problems you know what I mean and I want to just live my life that way but The parable's principle is this, is that that very night, that guy's life was taken from him, all of that, what he could have done with what he had, because where his heart was at, it didn't matter anyways, it was gone and probably squandered uh, by um, those who inherited it. Okay, God, that's kind of what it's going to be for us. Oh, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do with my life. Now, take notes, God. We can do that with Christians. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, God, and then I'm going to ask you to bless what I'm going to do. Is that not reversed? We don't go to God enough with that humble heart, open hand, and say, what do you want me to do? So he's challenging them because he's been hammering them and handling them. Are you really faithful or are you phony? Are you, are you just playing the game? Or are you serious here? Verse 14, you are a mystery. That appears for a little while, then vanishes. Now, I love what he's saying. He is conjuring some scripture that was a part of their culture at the time through Ecclesiastes, and even outside of their culture, this idea is that you're here and you're gone so fast. But I like how he says it. Like, you think you're so much in charge, you're just a mist when it comes to asking God of the universe what you should or shouldn't do. You think you're so confident, you're just a mist. You vanish. Ecclesiastes, If you, you should read the book of Ecclesiastes because it's a gut check in a self-evaluation of where you're putting your trust and where you think your life belongs. Ecclesiastes does a great job of this. You know what it does? It uses this word, you're chasing wind, and you're never going to catch the wind. And you're going to waste your whole life trying to catch something that's never really there. It's, it's meaningless. He calls it vanity. And I, I, when I read it, I was like, oh, man, I don't want to waste my life being a wind chaser. I'm never going to catch it. I want to waste my life doing that. God, what do you want me to do? And it's these things, there, these people, over time, they're hearing these values taught through God's word to them in the synagogue, through their parents, so they know the word, Ephesians, or sorry, James 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Meaning, I run my life through God's will. I, I run it through him. I am not the CEO of my life. I do not sit on the throne of my life, but I will run my life through him. You know, we feel that we can make all the plans for our life, but God would love to have a say in it. And I wonder if it would look any different than what you have planned out for yourself. I love what David says, Psalms 40. He says this when it comes to God's will. I delight in your will. Oh my God, your law key, your law is within my heart. If you ever want to know God's will for your life, And James is pointing it out to him, and he's going to have a really strong conclusion on this, is you must know God's word because his word reveals his will very strongly. Now, if you're looking for discernment and direction, I think definitely you you will need to seek spiritual direction on that. But if you're looking for what's God's will in a certain situation, you have a lot of guidance through his word. And so David could say, I delight in your will. I love your will, and I know your will because your law is in my heart. I know it. Luke twenty-two, forty-two. 42, Jesus is saying this. He says this. When he's faced with death, it's coming. He's in the garden, and he's alone, and he's praying. Oh, essentially, I'm going to paraphrase it this way. My will does not want to do this, is what Jesus is saying. I don't want to do it. Are you sure, God? And then he reminds himself, as we should, nevertheless, your will, not my will, be done. Whose will are you serving? It's a gut check. Jesus had to ask that question in that moment because Jesus' humanity was shown there. His reliance in his spirit was saying, your will, God, I know what is true. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. And, and, and it's hard sometimes to not feel like, I'm, like, look what I've done in my life. I know what to do. I know how to make the right decisions, so I know what I'm doing, and close our hands to what God might be calling us to do. Some of us in this room have accomplished great things. Some of us in this room have come through great things, difficult situations to bring us to places, but we have to really guard our hearts against arrogance of knowing I know exactly how to run my life and I can tell other people how to run their life too. It's arrogance. We must always be open-handed and very humble before God. I love what Psalms 34 says, uh, verse 2 my soul makes its boast in the lord if you're gonna boast in anything don't boast in yourself you know some people are literally breaking their arms patting themselves on the back it's pretty shocking when it's happening i've done it a couple times when i really wanted people to know how important i was you've ever done that you don't know what i've done let me tell you what i've done <laughs> and then you oh okay calm down like Boast make your boast in the Lord let the humble hear and be glad because that's where it begins It's easy to get caught up and James has seen it in his church his church is getting caught up in themselves and they're picking their will and maybe even saying this is God's will but James is saying I don't think you're seeing God's will based on the behavior that I'm seeing within the church Verse 17 is the conclusion of this section of this little section of asking the question, is your life for God? Whose will is it? Listen to what he says. So whoever whoever knows what the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And you know what he's saying? And why he used so many passages quoted by Jesus, quoted by the psalmist, and, and, and referenced in Ecclesiastes is this, is because You, they knew all of these things. They knew these biblical truths, and they were doing the opposite. And he's saying, "You may think you're doing it, but you know it. And if you know what the word tells you to do, and you do, and you don't do it, it's sin. So if you're going to live by your own will, you're not living by God's. You'll be in sin by doing that. They all knew it. They all knew it. They had very fresh teachings of Jesus on their minds, and James. Clearly did as the half-brother of Jesus. They're very close to what what Jesus was teaching, and they're doing the opposite of it as a church. And he has about had enough of it, but they're all accountable to it. You know the thing is, is you ever heard that phrase, once you know something, it's really hard to unknow it? Do you know what I'm saying? And James is saying, you know something. It's really hard to unknow it. And what you know now is making you accountable to it. And so he's calling them, hey, is your life for God? We have to ask that question for ourselves today. Is my life really for God? Is it for me? He's getting kind of serious here. And the next section is he's going to ask, and this question is going to probably arise, is what owns your heart? James has been hitting money Regularly, but he's hitting something, it's not money that is the problem, it's it's what we make money is becoming the problem. And he's seeing the separation happening in the church of the haves and the have-nots and the haves going, uh, oh, it's too bad that you don't have any within the church. You, you may not know this, but at the time they were doing like communion together as a church and eating as a family, and you brought your own stuff. And so you people would bring wine and all these nice things. It'd be a nice platter and then all these things that you got. And then there'd be people who had nothing and they'd have to sit and watch you eat. This is what was going on in the church. And he about throws up because he's like, how can you sit there and do that? Like you have, but your heart's wrong. You know, I uh, when I think about it, I've had people over the years, I think that people in church, honestly, would rather have me stand up here and tell them how they've been a bad little boy or a bad little girl versus talking about money. It's like, yeah, tell me how I've been bad, Jesus. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm going to be better. I love those messages. Keep bringing them. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Like, we love that. But when I talk, when you talk about money, it's like, hey, cool it. Okay? And, and this is why Jesus regularly dealt with the heart of it because so many of us it's easy to put our trust in money it 's so easy to put our trust in things it's so easy to put our get our identity from the things that the world values it's things and so he 's going to hammer them one more time I was uh, when I was researching this I thought I wonder how <laughs> oh, this is bad this is a dirty little pastor problem I have. Uh, I, I was watching, uh, I was like, how do how do those really rich pastors preach this next section? So I, did, I watched it. I did it. It was bad. I was like, how do they do it? And it was tough for me to watch because they're squirming. And one pastor I watched, he read through it so fast. Like, this is very convicting, this next section. And he read through it so fast. And he was like, you know what? And you know what this is saying, guys? This is, uh, um, you know, we need to be more generous. We all need to be more generous. Anyways, and then he spent a whole sermon on the rest of the verse, which is how to be a patient person. I was like, what about the money? It was really weird watching them do it. I'm not here to judge those guys. I just thought, I want to see if they can do this passage. Does money have their heart? What do you put your trust in? This is what this section is going to ask. The easiest thing at that time was just survival, and money was the way you could survive. Food, things were the way you could survive, so James comes to the core of to kind of pull out the dirty part of their heart. Verse 5, come now, you rich, weep and hollow for misery, uh, for the miseries that are coming upon you. You rich have rotted and your clothes, or your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. Now, this has nothing about having, it's not about have somebody having money. We all want to try to build a life for ourselves. It's not about that, but it's just, what's capturing your heart? What do you put your trust in, your identity in, your faith in? And James is seeing that there are those in his congregation that are being unkind and actually taking more money for themselves while others are suffering. Previously in James, he was saying, how dare you take people in your church to court, take everything that they have and take their money because at the time they couldn't pay you. How dare you do that? And now you've made them destitute, your own brothers and sisters. So... This is happening in the church there. And so he's coming at it real strong. I thought it was interesting what he said. I, pat, I pictured when he said, this is going to be the evidence against you, this, these things, this pile of rotten garbage that you worked your whole life to get and squandered your life for while everything else around you is falling apart, other people in your, in, in, in your church needing help. But you got your stuff. And I just pictured like standing before God, and this is what's going to testify about the life you live for God is this pile of garbage. That's the evidence against you. You know, I do think about it when James talks about money. I think that (sighs) Biggie was right. Mo' money, mo' problems. If you think about it, if you don't know who Biggie is, talk to me later, okay? <laughs> but, but, but at the end of the day, I think he might have been right. You know, I think he, he in a very simple phrase, just summarized some, some of the difficulty of too much wealth and what it does. And I, I was trying to write down everything that money can do, for, does in a, in a way, not just a blessing, but how it can become a curse when it owns you. Think about when you have a bunch of stuff. Well, the first thing you do is you got to, okay, now I got to protect it. So I got to make sure I keep the thieves out. Now I got to make sure that I insure it and keep it safe. I've got to maintain it because I got so much stuff. I got to maintain it. Your life becomes busy. Now I got to think about like, oh, if so-and-so gets something, I got to also get something just as nice. And and also at the same time, I got to think about, does this person actually like me for who I am or do they like me for what I have or what I do? Like, is my spouse marrying me for money or for love? Are my friends truly my friends? And then also I have people who are kind of working in a conversation that they need some of my money. And now I think, oh, now people just want something from me. And you become isolated and isolated and isolated. And this is when money has become a problem. Your heart and what you all wanted, what you wanted so badly, actually has become a curse. Now, I always have to say this. It's not about money, and God is not interested in how much money or how little money you have. He's God. All he wants is that heart, and he knows something that will try to take it from him, and that will be putting our identity in things and making those the parts of our life that matter, even while others are suffering who are in your own family, your church family, And this is what he says, once you're convicted, this is the evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire you have laid up treasure in your last days. Meaning they thought, now you don't know this, but maybe you do, at this time they thought for sure Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And so they're like, hey, wait a minute, just to get ready for Jesus coming back, it's going to be a big day, yay. Yay. Um, let's go ahead and make it as comfortable as possible. And the, this was happening all over the churches. Paul deals with it a couple times in his writings, where people are like, let's just kind of get as comfortable as we possibly can. Let's just make sure we're having a great time. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to get us when we're all happy. I'm around the pool with a daiquiri in our hands. It's going to be great. This is what they think. We're going to live it up, and we're going to live good till Jesus comes back. It's that mentality of like, what do we think that looks like when Jesus comes back? And what kind of church is he looking for? And what kind of person is he looking for that he's given the good news to, right? The hands and feet of Jesus, the ambassadors of Jesus. What is he looking for? I was reading about this church, such a, and this isn't, I couldn't really even call it a church. It's been deemed a cult, but like, they work off of, Christian principles, and they speak Christian terms, but it became really ultimately a cult. And they, I was interested because I was like, do churches do this? Do they're they waiting for the end and trying to really just put all their life into just getting ready for the end and spend all their money on it? And sure enough, they do. This church in Montana, <laughs> what's the name of the church? It's such a weird name. The Church Universal and Triumphant is the church's name, if you remember this, in the 90s. They, got, they built bunkers. You can put a picture of it, of one of their bunkers they built. They're massive. They bought 24,000 acres in Montana, waiting for Jesus to come back. They got 7,000 people to go down in those bunkers because they said Jesus is coming back on this day. Everybody was inside, waiting, and they put all of their money in it, and they sold spots for people who could afford more. And if Jesus didn't come back, you could stay longer. If you paid more, Wow. And then when Jesus didn't come back, they lost, you know, half their church because they're like, wait, where's Jesus? And then they had to go back and tell their boss, they sorry, they quit. You know, and so it was like a tough day. The mentality is let's just save ourselves. Let's make things as easy as possible. But Jesus has not called us to that. There's no great change has been made in this world by people hiding out and just trying to be comfortable. You can't read a historical document, extra-biblical as well, where when, when the plague would come into a city and they would devastate, and decimate the city. Antioch, where Paul was uh, ministering out of at a time, was constantly decimated. It was, they said that the city almost restarted 20 times in, in a span of 200 years because of plague and sickness and, and, and overall destruction that would happen through earthquakes. But you know who never left those cities with Christians? They weren't looking to wait it out, let everybody else fix it. Everybody else fled. Christians stayed. It's not how we're meant to live our life. It's just in comfort and luxury and wait it out because we're going to cash in our fire insurance that we made a deal with God that will be in heaven one day. James is very much pushing this point home to them. Matthew 16, Jesus himself says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth that are going to rot. Why would you invest your whole life there? It doesn't mean you can't have a car. It will rust and it will one day be gone. He's talking about a heart mentality that lives for these things that are meaningless in the end. Don't waste your life, he's saying, on lifeless things. A human life is much more important than anything you could ever purchase. It's a human life. It's a life. So there's been a debate about like why we have in we trust on the dollar. In God we trust. And it's like people don't like it. And I and I get it. I get the all the political reasons for it. I'm not even here to state that. But one thing I do like about it, even though if it's not intended by many people, is that uh, how it started. A lot of people don't know how it really started. Started from a preacher in 1861 in Pennsylvania who said, I think when we're having something that we say is value for life and death, we should remind people to to, to live a life that's not just hedonistic, but to put in God we trust. So when we have it, we remember, we don't trust in this, we trust in God. Now, it has gone way off the rails since then, but Abraham Lincoln loved that, that this preacher did this, and then he had this coin minted It was one of the first, in God we trust. And I think if we could see everything that we have, everything that we accumulate in life or things that we work for in life, that the mentality is we trust God more than this. It's a reminder to us to put our hearts and trust in God, and not in the things that pull our hearts away. I'll wrap up with a few more passages, but one of the things that We're going to see in this next little piece, he's still continuing about the heart. So he talks about people who live for money, what that evidence will show up at the end for them and how it will speak on their behalf. But then he goes into some of the actions that he has heard, and this is where it gets a little bit more hard to hear that this is what's been going on. But I, I think if we think about it this way, and James is worried about this, a captured heart If you're captured by things of the world and you're captured by what's important that makes the world think you're important, if you're captured by those things, it it will kill your compassion. And I know it's kind of a hard thing to say that it will kill your compassion, but it literally will make you turn the other way because you're like, well, that's too bad for you. I got my thing going and I'm doing really well. That's too bad for you, right? It kills compassion in us when our heart is captured by things of the world that give us an identity that is not in Christ, that is not trust in God. Verse 4, Behold, the wages of laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, this is never good when you've wronged somebody for gain. And you've taken advantage of somebody for gain, for your own greed of wealth, or in any other way, money is transferable, or or, you can put in any other thing in there. But when he says that the ears of the Lord heard the moans of these people, you're referenced right back to Pharaoh. And you don't want to stand before God with people crying out to God because you've done them wrong out of greed out of control, or out of some reason, because when God hears the moans of those people, look what happens to Egypt. So this is kind of that strong language he wants to use. Verse 5, You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. And he doesn't even resist you. This is interesting because... I've seen a lot of schemers over the years, and uh, I knew a guy who, who was in our church. He talked all the talk, but then he actually was running like a, a Ponzi scheme. You guys know what those are? <laughs> yeah. And uh, just big talk, and, and he even tried to get uh, me to invest in or even to get our church to invest in it. This is not this one years ago, because he was saying, I could take this investment, and I can get you 20% in a year, and I'm like, wow. That's like better than like any investor. And it was like, oh, yeah, I could get it for you. And lots of churches are given to me. And praise the Lord. But he was running the scheme. And so for us, if I had lost that money, it would be one of those tough things. I'd have to start over. It would be difficult. We'd lose, you know, like we could lose our house. But when we'd just keep working, try to save up, rent a house, live with some family. No, 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 no. This isn't what these people could do. So James is saying, when you are somebody who's employed these people in in the church and you rob them of their money to them, they were three days from death. They had no money to buy anything. They would die. You literally are murdering them. This is what James is dealing with. And that's what was happening in the church. So he says, you've condemned them to death, righteous people. And it's not like they were resisting you in life, meaning this, they're not, they weren't even your enemies, and you did this. Where's your heart at that you can just easily look away? I watched this uh, um, uh, 2020, you guys like 2020? I love 2020. <laughs> love to figure out some, uh, some crimes. And so, it's funny because I was watching this guy, and he, he was a big church donor, and uh, he was... Uh, uh, generous to all kinds of these charities, but uh, he had got himself into some trouble with uh, somebody who he paid to have intercourse with, and they were going to try to get money from him and extort him. And so he hired some hitmen to kill this person. <laughs> and At first, looked I was like, oh my gosh, does he go to church? And then sure enough, he does. Oh my goodness. It talks all this wonderful stuff, gives to all these people, but yet... What, what, where, where's the disconnect here? We have to be so careful to check our hearts with humility and open-handedness that we don't get caught up in the mindset that we are more than we are because of what we have because we can go to very terrible lengths, obviously. You know, this concept of looking out for the other, changing your heart, when you're so caught and captured by something, that it it kills your compassion. It's the heart of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. It is. Here's a guy who's so captured by what he can get, do for himself, have for himself, be, while he's turning a blind eye for someone who dies. And I love the story and the journey because it's like, look at what your lack of compassion because of a captured heart has done to so many people. And then he snaps back, and not only does he not turn his eye away from this little boy, he becomes a second father to little tiny Tim. It's a beautiful story that captures the essence of this. First Timothy 6.6, this is from Paul writing, and then I'll close with these two verses. But goodness and contentment is great gain. It's hard to be content. It's difficult, but it's of great gain. It will bring peace to your life. It it will open your eyes to other people, and it will take your eyes off of the things that are distracting you. He says, for we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. So how much are you investing in things of the world? He goes down to verse 10 and says this, this famous saying, First uh, Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root, a root, of all kinds of evils. We would always hear like, oh, the love of or, or, money is the root of all kinds of evils. Money is a tool. But it's a tool that can capture your heart if you do not possess it versus it possessing you. Anything in life can be that way. If it is possessing you, it's going to be a problem and all kinds of evils can come through it. But he says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with pangs. And so Paul is seeing this as well, of those who are being captured by other things, and all going to lead to them is a life living for lifeless things. So James, and here's what I believe he's saying to us, and we'll close. He is asking us, whose life are you living? Are you living a life for God, or are you just living a life for yourself? You have two wills here. What will to you bend the knee to more, your will or God's will? And if you want to know God's will, James essentially tells them, read the word, hear those, become accountable to it, and live by them. And then here, he's asking, what has captured your heart? Is it God? So we live open-handedly? Or is it another thing, and particularly money, manna, things of the world? My, I was talking to my buddy today, and he's the perfect guy to sell luxury watches, because <laughs> he, he was basically a guy who just ate out of dumpsters, literally. Uh, some people in this room would know him. He's one of my closest friends. He, but one of the things I always appreciated about him, and I was telling him, is that you could make someone who had just an insignificant thing to most people, make them feel like they had a million bucks. He went down to uh, visit Chad when Chad was living on a sailboat during college, and Pat Chad bought this sailboat. Uh, if, if you don't know Chad, this is totally Chad. Like He bought this sailboat to save money, live on a sailboat, and he was going to just have this great life. It was like a $4,000 sailboat, and it, it needed probably a lot of work. And my buddy went down there, and I, and I told Chad this. and said, I bet you when my buddy went down there, he said, look at this boat. Amazing, incredible! I bet you he made you feel like you had a yacht, and he was like, "Yeah, he did." Like, he could see the little things and appreciate them so much, which makes him—if you're faithful with little—then God puts people that that that, that uh, have much more in your life that you can do the same thing, but point them to Christ. So he's telling me that he sells these watches, and one of his clients. Uh, had him put on a watch that was a half of a million dollars. What? And he's like, feel this. He's like, I have another one that's two million, and I'll bring that in, and you can try it on. My buddy really appreciates these watches. But I told him, I said, he's found the perfect man, because if he brought in a Casio watch or a a Swatch watch, you would have been wow, that's an amazing watch. You must love that watch. And for this guy, and he started to tell my friend, listen, I'm really lonely. I feel like nobody really likes me for who I am. They always want something from me, and it's, I feel alone. And he said, but I appreciate you, because you make me feel like, like you don't want anything from me. He's like, I'm just happy for you. That's that thing in your heart. If you can just see money as a tool, it cannot capture your heart. It doesn't have to be this evil thing. It can be such a blessing if you decide to let God do his will with you. And so I want to always preface this. It's not about money. It's about your heart. He wants your heart. James is trying to tell his church he wants your heart. And he doesn't want you to play games. He doesn't want you to put on the church face. He wants your heart. And he wants your heart to be open to his will. And we'll have to do that every single day. God, I need to know your will. Read it in scripture. God, what do you say about this? What would you have me do? I'm sure it's in the book. God, how do you want me to handle this person? I'm sure you can read it in scripture. But then to not do it is sin. So do his will. He just wants your heart. Let him use you. You will not believe what God can do through someone who's willing to do what he asks. And the fulfillment that you have will put away all of those cravings and actually give you true fulfillment and won't leave you hungry anymore. James is setting us up for the final conclusion, which is what does it look like to live a life of faith and pray prayers of faith when we're especially wanting to be tempted by the world to draw us away. But what does it look like to be a people of faith? So I look forward to next week and I look forward to that for us as a church. So let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. God I ask that you make that, that, that decision easier for us in here, who are struggling to, to, to bend the will, to, to bend our knee to your will or our will, God that you make your will so clear and so pronounced in our life. And God, the joy and fulfillment of following you, there's nothing better. And so God, I ask that we be a church that is radiant a church that is, a, is, a, is a, a light on a hill. And God, that we be people in our families and friends and coworkers and neighbors' lives that are lights. And God, I, I pray for strength through temptation because temptation, like James said earlier and a couple weeks ago, is it will sharpen us. It will strengthen us. It will give us perseverance to resist the world and resist the devil because he will flee. And God, I ask that for any of us in here who are struggling with our heart being possessed, controlled by something that is killing compassion in our life. God, when we were the very worst, the very worst in our life, when we were the lowest in our life, when no one else wanted to touch us, you did, and we had nothing to offer, and you had everything but gave it all up Because of compassion. Help us have that compassion you have, Jesus. Let not compassion die in our lives and become cynical, hard people, but let us be open handed because that's what you did, Jesus. Do the hard walk and not the easy comfort way, waiting it out for Jesus to come and then we all have a party in heaven, God. But let us be people who, when we get to heaven, we celebrate the work, the journey and not just the destination. We love you and we thank you for words like James. Let it be written on our hearts and let it be active in our life, not just words, but deeds. In your name, amen. Would you guys stand with me this last song?